Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hello, good morning. This is Ken Murray. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. Plenty of debate and discussion between now and 11 a.m. And if you do want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. Now, to start us off this morning, the organisers of a cost-of-living protest planned for Dublin City later this month have urged people to take part in the demonstration. The protest is being organised to put pressure on the government to take further action against inflation before the next budget in October. The uh, protest, which takes place next Saturday, will start at Parnell Square at 1pm and make its way to Leinster House on Kildare Street. Well, to discuss this further, I'm joined on the line now by Sue Shaw, who is the Chief Executive executive of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. First of all, Sue, uh, we're all feeling the pinch with the cost of living, but um, how severe is it on our senior citizens? Good morning, Ken. It's very severe on our, se- on our senior, on our pension people. Um, the older generation, 70% are dependent on the state pension. So you're looking at an income that gives you two, at the top end of it, gives you 253 now, electricity has gone up by 41%, gas by 61%, home heating oil by 102%. That doesn't tip into the fuel. So if you're a rural person living in the country and you're dependent on, and you need your car, we all know our bus and train infra- infrastructure is not as good as it should be. It doesn't include our shopping bills that are going up. And for a lot of our members, we're aware that they are living in rented accommodation, so an increase in rent. Trying to manage all of these increases on the state pension is just impossible. So hard choices are being made by people. Well, I take it you've uh, spoken to politicians, whether it be your local TD or indeed uh, you've lobbied ministers. What are government people saying to you at this stage? I think, unfortunately for us, that there is a lack of awareness of just how difficult it is for people to manage. We are very aware that that there are competing interests for uh, the limited finances of a government. But at the end of the day, you have to acknowledge your own statistics. So the Central Central Statistics Office are saying that people need a certain income not to fall below the poverty line. The pension now, the current provision of the pension is placing people below the poverty line. 
So what we're saying is you need to address that and you need to hear very solidly that people are seriously not able to manage and we don't think that's been heard by the politicians. Their response is that we hope to deal with this in the budget. I'm sorry, the budget will be too late for too many people. Well, now, um, you know, we're all feeling the squeeze, particularly if you're a motorist like myself and the price of petrol and diesel has gone up. Uh, We're expecting knock-on costs for the price of electricity and so on. If you could sit down, for example, with the Minister for Finance tomorrow, uh, what exactly and in what key areas would you like him to address? I mean, it can't just all be about increasing uh, the old age pension. Are there areas where you want VAT reduced or are there areas where you'd prefer the government to take less of a tax cut? Certainly, I think the government agreed that the carbon tax would go towards families and those who are most exposed and least able to manage. So we're clearly saying, well, let's address that. Let's use your current policy of supporting those who are at the highest risk. So what what percentage of the carbon tax is going to be set aside for a cash payment that would be linked to increase energy costs? So it's a direct. We did actually have that, Ken, up to 2012, and then that got moved aside. But we're saying reinstate that. A cash payment deliberately linked to energy costs. We're asking that that come from a carbon tax that you have agreed should partly should be ring-fenced to protect people most at risk. We're also saying the pension itself, while you're saying it can't only be that, we're clear about this. The pension has had a €5 increase in the last three years. €5 last year, nothing for the two years previous to that. And it's it's at the whim of a minister. We're saying please link the pension to the average industrial wage, to a concrete increase that people can know well I have that coming I can budget for that instead of just thinking well maybe we'll get a fiver this year particularly when we've had two years of absolutely no increase and then a fiver last year which didn't go away go anywhere to meet the increased costs of last year so being really clear if there is a poverty line if your own stats are saying people are falling below the poverty line address that bring the pension payment up to ensuring that people are not below the poverty line. And what they're saying is that would need to be 291 weekly. Well, now, I was talking to my coal man, the man who delivers my coal, uh, Richard McGuinness. He's from RD. He's probably listening in this morning, and he was saying to me at the weekend that what he's hearing in the energy supply business is that the price of a bag of coal come October could go up to as much as 40, even 50 euro a bag. What sort of scenario does that present for the people you represent? A high percentage of older people live in low in not the best energy efficient houses. We are aware that older houses are really a big issue. Like I live in an old house. I'm very aware that my oil bill is through the roof and I have a house that's not as insulated as, say, my daughter's house. So we're clearly saying, so that if you think of that, I, like it, it, it terrifies me when you say things like that and we're hearing it ourselves. We're saying that people just can't afford that. So many people are dependent on uh, coal fires to keep a room heated rather than a whole house heated. So we're saying that that really needs to be addressed. There needs Again, it's linking some cash payment to the increase in energy costs. So a support for older people and those on state transfers that they actually know that will come to support me getting through the winter. So it, 
older houses, like genuinely, they 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 just consume a huge amount of energy. And unfortunately, for many of our members and for many older people, the retrofit scheme, while it's it's good and we're glad it's in place, for many they have to match some of the money to it. And look, that savings like that are not possible on a state pension. So we're asking them to address that as well. So we would say definitely there needs to be a greater look at how houses can be retrofit and how that can be supported maybe more. And also there has to be some payment, cash payment linked to energy costs. Well, now, there was a phrase being bandied about there recently because of the increase in the cost of living that for some elderly people, uh, they were faced with the delicate choice of eat or heat, but the signs are that some of them may not even be able to eat, let alone heat their homes. Uh, what sort of scenario do you see evolving over the coming months, either in terms of more people drifting into poverty or being faced with the choice of eat or heat uh, if the government doesn't act in the October budget? I think if it, it needs to act before the October budget. Like, by and large, for older people, the summer months meant yes, I will be knocking my heating on, say, for an hour in the morning, or I will be using an electric heater or whatever it is, or the fire, maybe not the fire, but an electric heater, just for an hour in the morning and in the evening. So that gives me savings towards my winter fuel bills. That's just not possible now. The savings that you would make during these summer periods won't go anywhere near because it's being consumed, as you rightly point out, by petrol costs, by the current ESB costs, by your gas bill, by your food bill. So what we're, we're constantly hearing from people, I am terrified of what's going to happen. I had one woman ring me to say, I have a medical issue. I can't get to see, I'm on a three-year waiting list, so I'm saving for the consultant. If I have to make this choice now, do I heat my home or do I pay for my consultant's bill? Now, that's just not, do you know what I mean? She said herself, I ha- I've, I'm looking and asking friends to give me an old duvet and extra blankets that they have. Like, I, I can't believe we're in this, you know, this 2022 and we have older people saying that to us. And I think people dismiss the idea that people will heat or eat. I think genuinely people are looking. We have members ringing us saying, I used to pass the aisle that had the reduced rate of food because it was ready to go off or its best by date was gone. I am now so familiar with that. I only shop in in that section. And if that's not there, well, then I do without. People looking and saying to us, well, it's beans and toast because it's protein rather than meat. And that sounds flippant, but that's a harsh reality that many, many people are facing. One of the other things I think, Ken, as well, that we tend to forget about, a huge amount of older people mind their grandchildren. We've had people really concerned about the fact that I'll have the grandkids coming in from school and the house won't be warm enough for them. That's a huge concern for them as well. So it isn't only just for themselves, it's also for their family. And it, you know, we know ourselves from the amount of members we have, just, just how high the percentage of older people who are minding grandchildren is. So I think what seems to be a catchphrase like heat or eat, we need to put that in perspective and think about older people, and not just older people, but older people making those harsh choices around do I heat, do I use blankets instead of now turning the heat on. We did know that people heated one room maybe while the rest of the house, a house needs heat, it needs uh, warm air circulating through it. We need that in a home to keep it 
uh, from all of the things that happen to a house that's not being used fully. But to imagine people now deciding not to turn on heating, I just, I, I think the government really needs to wake up and hear what people are saying to them. Well, now, in fairness to the government, do you accept that the difficulty the government has is that we have a war in Ukraine and this has severely affected the supply of gas and oil and this has had knock-on costs in terms of transport, which has saw increases in the price of food, increases in the price of energy, and that Ireland isn't alone, that this is, if you like, a pan-European problem. Do you accept that, you know, that while there is a cost-of-living crisis, it's not entirely the fault of the government? Well, absolutely. We are not. We're in no way saying that this is the entirely the cost of the government. But I'm also conscious that two years ago we were trying to battle with, with the government to look at cost of living, ageing at home for older people. This is pre um, the pandemic, or this is pre the situation in, in Ukraine and the rising cost of fuel based on that. There have been issues that have now been made worse by that. So in some, en- some senses, yes, we do understand that. But equally, I don't know any grouping that have talked to me about the politicians sitting down and saying, where can we make it better with you? There needs to be a clear engagement with organisations like ourselves, listen and hearing what people are saying to them. And I do think that in times of crisis, we can pull together and we have shown that, that we can actually, we came through COVID never believing we could. And I think it's about prioritising the reality of people's income to ensure that they have a basic standard of living. I'm not talking about... Sure, sure. Um, You're, if you like, the CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. You're effectively uh, a lobby group for pensioners in this country. Do you think that uh, the political establishment in this country take the so-called grey vote seriously? I think they should, but answer to the question is at the moment no they don't and I think that's why this march is so crucial we need to send a strong message to the government look we are retired you know our members are retired workers they're not retired voters the bottom line is as we age most people move back into voting even if they drifted away from it but older people do vote older people are very conscientious about that And I would say that the politicians need to hear that and listen and say, well, look, but it shouldn't be because they lose a vote. It should be because they know this is the decent thing to do. The bottom line is people cannot afford to live. So we're asking older people to strongly come together, to get out on June the 18th and show that strength to the government, show them how serious we are and asking them to take us seriously. Well, now, you have this protest on Saturday in Dublin. You're going to kick off from Parnell Square at 1pm. If there are senior citizens in the Louthmeath area and they want to take part, is it simply a case of just showing up at Parnell Square in advance of 1pm, bringing a banner and getting involved, or is there uh, any registration involved? Or, as I said, is it a case of just showing up and uh, hopefully increasing the numbers to put the pressure on? No, it's just a case of showing up. We will be there with our large, big green banner. They can join us or they can join into the group with their own banners. 
with the statements they feel are really important for the government to hear, but we would just say the important thing is show up. You don't need to register. You just need to show up at any part of the walk. Join the walk along, you know, elsewhere onwards and just join us. The point is get the message across to the government. We are not happy with this. Older people are not happy. And I presume you would be encouraging old age pensioners to take full advantage of the free travel pass they have uh, to, if you like, show their strength on this. Yes, certainly we would say avail of it. And particularly if you're from, you know, your, your, your area. But across the country, we're saying to people come. But equally, I would, I am conscious, we'll have to use our car a little bit and get themselves because they don't always have direct transport from where they are. But we would encourage them to car share to get to using their bus pass or their train pass. Come, lend your voice, let them hear us. I really would encourage older people to say, look, enough is enough. They need to hear us. Okay, well, all we can do is wish you well and that protest march for Irish senior citizens gets underway at 1pm on Saturday next, June the 18th. It uh, kicks off from Parnell Square at 1pm and it will wind its way towards the gates of Leinster House on Kildare Street. That's uh, Sue Shaw there, the CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we're off to Dundalk for our next story and uh, structural damage was caused to a property in the Ashbrook area of the town last night. Uh, Firefighters had to attend a house fire. They were called to the scene at around uh, quarter to ten last night. A USB power bank is understood to have been left plugged in and caught fire before causing a nearby aerosol can to explode. Now, for the benefit of listeners who perhaps are not well up on technology, a USB power bank, for the want of a better description, is a glorified battery. You plug it in, you charge it up, and if your phone, for example, or your laptop are running low on battery power, then you plug it into the power bank and it transfers the power across and so on. And it seems that while sometimes people plug in their power bank to charge it up overnight, this particular story suggests that uh, you need to think twice before you leave a power bank plugged in uh, overnight while you sleep, even though the night rate of electricity tends to be cheaper. But as we saw last night, it would appear that this uh, is a dangerous thing to do. To discuss this further, I'm joined on the line right now by Eamon Wolfe, who is the Chief Fire Officer with Louth County Council. Uh, first of all, uh, Eamon, I know you can't go into the specifics about what happened last night, but just uh, just talk us through what you know. Uh, OK, Kim. Uh, I, I have to say it came as a shock to um, myself and other people who were at the scene the extent of damage that that was caused by just a small aerosol uh, can deodorant uh, can uh, and it, it and it doesn't take a lot of heat. It was only a small fire that was next to the deodorant can and it exploded and it did quite a lot of damage. Luckily, there was no one there in the room. You know, it's un- it's unimaginable what injuries could have happened. It's it's just um, a major wake up call, really, to the to the risk from these um, hairspray and deodorant uh, aerosol canisters. Okay, I think I said this happened last night. In fact, it was last Thursday night. So my apologies for that. But uh, on on the issue of plugging in, we'll say phones or laptops or these USB power banks. Um, how how dangerous is it to go down that road? 
Well, uh, it's obviously uh, these uh, power uh, banks are uh, a risk um, because it simply can go on fire. Uh, but it's not only a power bank. Uh, you know, a mobile phone can, can go on fire. Um, there could be a candle in the room. Um, you know, there, there's a whole range of uh, cigarettes. Someone could be smoking cigarettes. It, this is only the, the point about this is that there's a, a small fire, but this uh, aerosol can happen to be next to it, um, and it doesn't take a lot of heat to rupture these things. And they are full of flammable, explosive, absolutely lethal gases, the same as what you'd have in an LPG canister, in an LPG cylinder. Similar. Uh, really, really dangerous gases. Uh, and the, the message needs to get out there that this this could have happened in anyone's house because these uh, aerosol uh, deodorant canisters, we all have them uh, in our houses. And what needs to be done is that they need to be kept where a fire is least likely to happen. And that's really the bathroom. So like these should be kept in bathrooms in people's houses. That's the message from this incident. As I say... We were all taken aback by the damage that this that just a small, flimsy canister can do. Well, now, youngsters are buying these power banks, to, as I say, to charge up their phones when the battery goes low or indeed charge up their laptops. Uh, would I be right in saying that there's low awareness of the warnings that go with owning these things? Uh well, it, it appears to be the case uh, in that uh, maybe there wasn't awareness of the uh, of the danger. Um, but you see, that's not the point. The point is that if the, uh, the deodorant spray can wasn't there, it would have been a small fire. And well, we would always we would recommend that people uh, put in um, domestic uh, detectors, fire, smoke detectors, in all rooms in the house. Um, you know, with this now increasing risk, that would be a very good idea, and that would pick up the um, pick up this pretty small fire uh, pretty quickly and warn the occupants. Um, it's obviously uh, people need to be careful about these, but I suppose the point is, fire can happen for a variety of reasons, not only these power banks, but people need to be very careful about uh, the use of power banks. Are you finding that this is becoming, if you like, a more frequent problem? Uh, it's not frequent, but I would assume that there's uh, increasing numbers of these, and this could happen again. It could happen at a nice in anyone's house, and um, you know, luckily there were no injuries last week. If there was, if someone was was in the same room when this happened, they could they could get could have got seriously injured. Um, so, uh, just need to get the and and the way the best. In terms of the uh, deodorant spray cans and the hairspray, similar hairspray cans, um, keep them in the bathroom. Um, just take away that element of risk. Take away the explosion risk by, by keeping these out of bedrooms. Now, the damage done to this house in the Ashbrook area of uh, Dundalk, I believe it was significant structural damage, which suggests that this explosion of this aerosol can uh, wasn't a small affair. I mean, are you in a position to tell us uh, the extent of the damage? Uh, I don't really want to get into too much detail, except to say that it was structural damage. And structural damage is a serious thing. Uh, if if an explosion can cause structural damage, it can certainly cause serious injuries. That's the point. 
Is it time then for the, the people who make these various sprays or whatever that are contained in aerosol cans to, if you like, engage in some sort of an awareness campaign to remind people that, in fact, they shouldn't use these aerosol cans in their bedrooms, but as you rightly say, uh, keep them uh, for use in bathrooms? Uh, well, they possibly could be used in the bedrooms once they're stored in the bathroom because uh, they won't go on fire, um, you know, if someone is using them. It's only when they're left unattended that they're, that they're a danger. Uh, but I just checked um, the the, uh, the warning on the can. It says it's an extremely flammable aerosol, pressurized container, may just burst if heated. Keep away from heat, hot surfaces, open flames, and other ignition sources. No smoking. But that doesn't really give you the picture of the explosion risk up from these from these things. There's no mention there of explosions, and that's that is the that is the risk. Um, I suppose the question too also has to be raised in terms of the fact that youngsters who would use, whether it's deodorant or hairsprays and so on, uh, that they wouldn't be aware that if they bring one of these aerosol cans uh, into their room, they are vulnerable to the scenario that happened in the Ashbrook area last night. I mean, is there anything parents can do to try and get the message across? Well, I think the parents need to check their houses, check the check the bedrooms, and um, just uh, ask the kids to, to can, can these be kept in the bathroom? Can can all of these um, hairsprays, deodorants, all of these canisters can they can can they be kept in the bathroom? You see, there's an additional risk as well. If if, if the house goes on fire, and um, we know that these are probably in most houses, like if the fire service personnel are in there uh, rescuing uh, people in a fire. There's a risk to the occupants being rescued. There's a risk to the firefighters from an explosion happening while that while that task is being done. So there's all sorts of risks from from these um, from these canisters, and people need to be aware of us. Just need to do a check on their house, and as I say, keep these in the bathroom. Okay, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Eamon Wolfe, who is the Chief Fire Officer with Loud County Council. And as I say, that uh, explosion happened in the Ashbrook area of Dundalk last Thursday night, not last night, as I said earlier on. And the warning there is that if you use aerosol cans, whether it's deodorant, whether it's hairspray, whether it is whatever you use it for, uh, where possible, keep them in bathrooms. Don't be bringing them into bedrooms because if USB power banks and the like overheat and catch fire uh, well then we know what the outcome could be okay if you do want to get in touch our text number is 086 1800 658 keep your comments coming Uh, still to come we'll be talking about men's health week we'll also be talking about plans by the british government to bin the northern ireland protocol and what that's going to mean for trade on the island of ireland and we'll have a chat about irish neutrality and whether or not we should formally join nato that's the north atlantic treaty organization which traditionally has been if you like a a block of countries opposed to the spread of communism okay more to come we'll take a break Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. And of course, if you want to get in touch, our text number is 86 658 And some of you have been in touch this morning. I'll just go through some of the comments. Anne fully agrees with Sue Shaw that there is a serious lack of understanding of how much older people are struggling at the minute. Many are below the poverty line and these increases are only going to see their situation worsen. People are scared of how they are going to manage in the weeks to come and they cannot see any light at the end of the tunnel. Tommy was in touch. He thinks... 
an emergency budget needs to happen sooner rather than later. We cannot wait until October for the next budget. Sarah says it was very sad listening to Sue Shaw speaking on the show this morning about the concerns the people they work with have, hearing Sue describe how one woman will have to choose between heating her house or paying her consultant fees was heartbreaking. People are pushed to the pin of their collar financially and it's not going to get any easier. And Mary was in touch. Mary is angry. She said she is enraged after the opening piece this morning. Listening to Sue Shaw talking about the struggles faced by older people made her blood boil. How have we turned into a society where our older people are having to decide between food or fuel on a weekly basis? Shame on us, she says, and shame on those in power who have allowed things to get to this stage. She says there's a famous quote from Mahatma Gandhi saying that the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable citizens. Well, we here in Ireland have nothing to be proud of given how how much our vulnerable people are suffering uh, at the moment. Now, moving on, and you may or may not be aware that this is uh, Men's Health Week 2022. And uh, there's a warning here that men should utilise convenience and accessibility of local pharmacies to tackle niggling health worries. Pharmacies are an ideal place for men to start their new health journey. Well, Tomás Confrey is a community pharmacist and a member of the Irish Pharmacy Union, and he joins me on the line right now. Uh, First of all, Men's Health Week. What sort of issues are men of all ages facing at the moment, Tomás? Well, good morning, Ken. There's a lot of different issues um, that that we, uh, we see in the pharmacy normally. Uh, just a, an example of three of them: uh, high blood pressure, smoking cessation, and sports injuries. A lot of guys are playing sports at the moment over the summer. So really, we're, we're kind of trying to encourage men to uh, look at pharmacies as the ideal place for them to start a new health journey. They may have like a health concern or even just some of the niggling worry that. They, you know, that that they need to address. So, like, pharmacies are accessible. We're in every town in the country and every main street. So, and you don't need an appointment to come to see us. Um, a common complaint for men, something obviously that uh, women wouldn't experience, uh, for example, are areas like prostate cancer, and that sometimes uh, the symptoms are not exactly very obvious. Uh, and yet certain men of a certain age get prostate cancer and aren't aware they have it. And some men take the view that, well, if they're walking around and they feel healthy, as far as they're concerned, there's nothing to worry about. But how important is it to get, we'll say, a regular health check, perhaps even every six months? Oh, very, very important. I mean, if they come into us, I, I know in my own ability what I can treat and what I can't treat. So if somebody comes into me and they have a condition like athlete's foot, I know how to deal with that. But if it's something a bit more serious, like a prostate problem or prostate cancer, I, then I have to refer them on. But I always like to think that I know what I can treat, and if I can't treat it, I know where to send somebody. So when people come in here, it's not just, um, we can't solve everything, but if I can't solve the problem, I know where I can send them, where they can get further help. Well, now, of course, one of the problems we have in this country, for example, compared to the UK, is that in the UK, because of uh, how wonderful the NHS is, uh, an individual can practically walk in off the street to a health centre and get a test done for whatever area and walk out the door again and there's no cost involved. And that the cost here sometimes discourages men, particularly men on low income, uh, from getting health checks. Do you find that that actually is a problem? Yeah, cost would be an issue, all right. I know in our pharmacy, we do a small number of checks. We do like um, 
blood pressure monitoring, we do weight and measurement and body mass index. Also, we, we do vaccinations and we do um, a 24-hour blood pressure monitoring service. So the, obviously, cost is an issue, of course, especially now, along with everything else. But having said that, you know, your pharmacy is very accessible. The cost really is, is kind of minimal in comparison to other services. And as well, it's, you know, a lot of what we do is even, it's advice we give. So if I can help somebody, the cost really, it's a, we're a lot more economical maybe than having to go to a doctor. If we can solve a problem, somebody come to us for athlete's foot, we can solve that, no problem. Save them having to go to the doctor to pay the cost of the prescription. Where if they come to us, we just give them maybe a cream, a powder, something else perhaps. So there's a lot of things pharmacies can treat without necessarily taking up doctor's times, but also we, I think we offer great value to our patients as well. Uh, talk to me about men's health lifestyles. I mean, men who drink, for example, you know, might spend a lot of time in the pub uh, spending money on alcohol. And some men who go to the pub come out of the pub and they go to the local chipper and they stuff themselves with chicken and chips and fish and all that type of thing at late hours of the night that doesn't digest properly and builds up fat and so on. I mean, uh, how would you describe, for example, how good or bad uh, men's health lifestyle is in this country you know i it's really it's it's a big problem you know especially where where, where i'm based in 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 dublin across the road from me there's a pub uh, across the other side of the road there's a chip shop and like in a way you know it, it these things are so easily accessible now and everybody's into convenience foods so it's a, it's a real challenge but having said that i think through education and through talking to people over a period of time we can help them to improve their habits it's not going to happen overnight but I think if we can just talk to them, get, hopefully get the message through to them, maybe through to their families as well, you know, that, you know, take a bit of exercise, cut down on your, on your chipper, cut down on your number of drinks a week. These are all small changes that you make now, which will pay dividends later on. And of course, there's still a culture, albeit it's changing slowly, of, uh, you know, large numbers of men in this country smoking. Is this contributing to, you know, an, old, an unhealthy body? Yes, definitely. Over, over a period of time, it definitely is. You know, there's a lot. I see it, and a lot of people vaping as well, which is a, a new a new issue we've come across as well. And so, yeah, like one of the things that we do here is a smoking cessation. So people can come up to into us and talk about different nicotine replacement therapy products. So not every product will suit everybody. Like a patch mightn't suit me, but maybe something else might suit me, a spray or a gum or something like that. So people can come into us. We can have a chat with them and we'll find out the best solution to help them achieve whatever target it could be. They want to lose weight. They want to stop smoking. They want to, you know, they want to look at their diet. We, we have plenty of information for them. Okay, well, you mentioned vaping there. I don't smoke myself, so uh, I'm asking this question with pure ignorance. Is vaping harmful to the male body or even the female body? I, I suppose the jury's out and I, I'd imagine it is. I, I, I don't know myself, but... Um, I guess it's a substitute, isn't it, for cigarettes and for nicotine? So, although there probably is nicotine in the in the vapes themselves, I don't smoke, I don't vape, um, but I'd imagine only time will tell whether um, how good or how bad these vape products are. But overall, um, the Irish male is now living, we'll say, longer than the Irish male did, we'll say, twenty years ago. I think is it what the average. 
uh, mortality rate now is around, is it 78? Um, it's up a year or two on previous figures. So in theory, we are becoming a little bit more healthy um, and we're not engaging in bad food in the way we used to. So uh, aren't things improving? Yeah, certainly. And I, I mean, as time goes on, hopefully we'll, we'll see a lot more improvements and longer lifespan and sort of less sort of cardiovascular issues in terms of like heart attacks, diabetes, things like that. So I think we're in the right direction. I think it's just a bit of education on our, pa- on our part by pharmacists, by doctors, by the HSE. I think if you combine all that together, we're definitely in the right direction. We, we just need to keep reinforcing the message day after day, month after month, year after year. Well, now, COVID-19 saw more and more people out walking um, because simply they had nothing else to do and it was also a a healthy practice. Uh, Are there signs that, in fact, more and more men are engaging in physical exercise? Definitely. I I know myself, I started, I took up walking myself uh, before or during COVID-19 and over the last year. So every day before I go to work, I walk for about 30 or 40 minutes. So I kind of come into work kind of refreshed. And um, yeah, like I've seen it now as well, especially older men are, they were cooped up for so long that they are glad to get out and do any kind of exercise. Like there's an over an over 35 football team just where I work as well. So that was only come together since COVID. So definitely people are making the most of it now and they're doing that. And men, are, they're, they're out, out and about trying to, to make up maybe for last time. Okay, well, the Irish Pharmacy Union, of which you are a member, is encouraging men to utilise the convenience of the local pharmacy during Men's Health Week. I mean, you know, as I said earlier on, some people in this country put off or prolong going to the doctor because they just see euro signs, you know, flashing before them. It's all about cost, cost, cost. So in what way can a man who perhaps has concerns about his health uh, take full advantage of the local pharmacy in a way that there's no cost involved? Well, really, if they come in and even they just have a, a, a concern or some sort of worry that's niggling them, we have a private consultation area, a little room. We can go sit in, have a chat. That might be all it takes for somebody to start to think, well, you know, maybe I should cut down on my smoking or I should not drink as much or maybe look at my diet. So, I mean, when you think about it, the advice we give, there's no charge with that. It's free. So that's really a good service. And I think sometimes that's all people need. It's a bit of reassurance, maybe a bit of direction. So in, in that way, it doesn't really take any money out of their pockets. Of course, if, the, if there's a condition that needs to be addressed, we can help them or if we can't help them, I know where to send them. Okay, so the advice there is that uh, if you're a male, whatever age, and you have concerns about your health, even if it's pure curiosity, just pop into your local pharmacy and basically just ask for some advice on what they should do, respective or relative to their own individual lifestyle. I presume that's the the case. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Like I say, we're accessible. You don't need an appointment to see us. We're only too happy to have a chat with you as well. And that might all, that's that's all it might be is a chat. You know, if, if there's some sort of health issue worrying you or something niggling you, come in and have a chat with us. We'll, we'll do our best to um, to give you peace of mind. OK, well, we leave it there. And as I say, Men's Health Week runs from today until next, uh, I think it's next, next Saturday. Yeah. Saturday, yeah. Yeah, exactly, the 19th of June. That's um, Tomás Confrey there, a community pharmacist and member of the Irish Pharmacy Union. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. 
Your comments are coming in hot and fast based on the stories we've covered already this morning. Regarding the cost of living, Stephanie from Drogheda was in touch. I'm a senior citizen with no private pension, so I'm dependent on the state pension and I have been finding it very hard in recent weeks to make ends meet because of the rise in the cost of living. All my bills have gone up, especially groceries. How will we be able to afford our heating costs when the summer is over? Peter was in touch from East Meath. Is it that the TDs are immune to the spiralling cost of living because of their big wages? Otherwise, they'd realise that many citizens are finding it very hard financially. There needs to be something done before the budget to help people. We cannot wait until then. Now, what's shaping up to be probably the biggest story of the day uh, is the fact that uh, the British government is planning to introduce legislation at Westminster in London, which effectively will bin the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, this is very controversial because it seems the British have gone off on a solo run. This is a unilateral decision. There's been no negotiation or compromise with the European Commission. And uh, to effectively quote Senator Neil Richmond, who was on this programme, last week, it would appear that the British are giving the two fingers to the European Commission. Well, to discuss this further, I'm joined by our political correspondent, uh, Sean Defoe. First of all, Sean, uh, do we know what's going to be in this legislation when it's published at half three today? Uh, morning, Ken. Yeah, we've got a fairly good idea from the British papers this morning and effectively it's going to outline a number of um, different criteria under which the UK government could unilaterally override parts of the protocol and particularly parts of the protocol when it results to goods going into Northern Ireland. So obviously the biggest part of the Northern Ireland protocol, the whole thing it was designed to solve, to avoid any sort of a hard border on Northern Ireland. And the way that it does that is that instead of checking goods when they come from the north into the south, uh, effectively from the UK into the EU, there instead some of them are checked at ports coming into the, to Northern Ireland when they come from mainland UK, if you like. And that's where the nub of the problem has been because the DUP and other unionists think this is a clear separation between UK and Northern Ireland and are not at all supportive of the protocol. And now a sort of a rump of Boris Johnson's Conservative Party have the same kind of view. So effectively, this legislation would allow uh, the Tory government to overthrow parts, really, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And what they're saying it would do is it would end checks on goods coming into Northern Ireland and allow businesses in Northern Ireland to pick whether they want to follow standards set by the EU and the single market or standards set by the UK. And that obviously is a problem for the EU because that undermines, in their view, the integrity of the single market if if businesses are choosing to stick to, say, lower standards in the future that the UK might have and then those goods are flowing into the single market by Ireland. That is a problem. So that that effectively is the nub of the argument and the row that's going on at the minute. If I understand exactly what you said, are you more or less saying we're going back to a period prior to the protocol being agreed where there just was that free movement of goods between GB and NI uh, and that basically um, it's a return to where we were and that life will go on and there will be no issues over differing standards? That is effectively what the, the legislation would do. Now, of course, there still would be issues over uh, different standards because the EU has threatened retaliation if this goes ahead and that the EU would impose trade sanctions. You still have to have 
uh, in the mind of the EU, that border somewhere. They can't just let goods flow from a third country into the single market. It would undermine the whole point of the single market and, and a single market that actually former teacher Bertie Hearn pointed out this morning, the UK actually was one of the big architects of back when they were they were in Europe and they were a full-throated part of the EU, if you like. So there is going to be a big problem there, but that is effectively what the UK government is trying to do. Now, Liz Truss has reiterated this morning that uh, she wants a negotiated solution rather than going down this route, that this is sort of an insurance policy, if you like. But it's it, it sort of become a sort of Damocles. It's nearly a threat to hold over the EU that, look, if there isn't some sort of progress, this is what we will do. At the EU and Mr. Simon Coleman, for example, very much saying, though, that if the UK side is not engaging, the EU put forward in November a series of proposals to get around the problems with the protocol that would involve ending 80% of the checks on those goods coming from the UK into Northern Ireland and they don't feel that that's been properly hashed out or properly responded to by the UK. And indeed, there was a very frosty call this morning between Liz Truss and Simon Coveney after the, the two readouts from the government's very, very different. Liz Truss saying she reiterated the UK wants to negotiate solutions. Simon Coveney saying this reach, would reach a new low in UK-Irish relations when it comes to Brexit, saying it would be a breach of international law and ending that phone call after just 12 minutes chatting this morning. So very frosty relations between the two this morning. Okay, well, this whole issue of standards, for example, if uh, over a period of time, uh, British standards, we'll say on food production, diverge from EU standards, don't we have a problem here that we could have British food in our supermarkets, for, for example? I'm only using food as an example, but there are other areas, particularly in relation to medicines and so on, uh, that we could have our market, if you like, diluted with British standards, which could be substandard to an EU standard, and we have the potential to lose out. And I'm just using that as one example. Isn't that the case? That is the case, yeah. And as you say, that's just one example. It could come on a whole bunch of other things. It could be medicine, it could be food, it could be any sort of a different thing that you like to pick. And that's the EU's big fear, is that the UK will go to lower standards and maybe do trade deals with other third countries who have lower standards again. And those items are coming into the EU and then coming, uh, coming into the EU through the back door of Northern Ireland, if you like, and potentially then being exported from Ireland into the rest of the EU. So that, that is the fear that, as you say, diluted is probably a good word, uh, the integrity of the single market by the UK doing this. So if the checks at Belfast and Port go, uh, is that enough then, for example, for the DUP to say to Sinn Féin, OK, lads, we've got what we wanted, let's uh, kickstart the Assembly and we're back in business, or are the DUP likely to come up with other excuses not to do business with Sinn Féin? Well, that's one of the big questions, because Boris Johnson seems to be hoping in this gambit today that even publishing the legislation would be enough to get the DUP to at least facilitate the election of a speaker in Northern Ireland and to unlock some of Stormont to get it running in some sort of a way, And um, because you could have a speaker even if there weren't ministers and some of the committees could sit, for example, at least some businesses, uh, some business in Stormont could be transacted. The DUP, though, seem to be saying that just publishing this legislation isn't good enough for them, that they're not going to go ahead and, and rejoin, that they have to see it actually in action. So not only is it enough to publish this legislation today, but they want to see it in place. Uh, whereas you, on the other hand, have said if this does get put in place, if you go beyond publishing this and you actually make it law in the UK and move to act on it, 
then there could well be the likes of a trade war. There will be immediate trade sanctions between the EU and the UK. So you may restore Stormont at the cost of a trade war between the EU and the UK. And it's not even 100% guaranteed, I don't think. There's a lot of people within unions and perhaps looking for an excuse not to go in with Sinn Féin anyway and using this maybe as the, the sort of big leap. But that's something that we, we can't really predict unless it does happen. But if it does happen, we will have much bigger consequences that we're worrying about because, of course, everyone is already squeezed by the cost of living increases that are going on at the minute and the sort of de facto trade war that's taking place between Russia and the rest of the world that's been pushing up food prices and fuel prices. Were there then to be another actual trade war between the UK, which is our biggest, I think still our biggest trading partner, always historically was, though there's been some changes in the last few years, uh, that would have another knock-on impact for people living here, perhaps more so than than other citizens of the EU. I was watching uh, Brandon Lewis on BBC yesterday morning and Suzanne Breen of the Belfast Telegraph uh, said he was talking gibberish. And I'm just wondering, I mean, are the British bluffing here because they're effectively saying that it's the EU who's being uncooperative? But would it be fair to say that if anything, it's the British who are being uncooperative? Yeah, I think they're talking fairly roundly through their hat uh, at the minute about how this is going on. Um, Brandon Lewis was basically making the argument that the Good Friday Agreement as an international treaty stands higher than the Northern Ireland Protocol as an international treaty, and so they're not actually breaking um, breaking international law. But of course, there doesn't seem to be any part of the Northern Ireland Protocol that would uh, defy or undermine the Good Friday Agreement. That's something else that, that Bertie Hearn, who was obviously involved in the negotiation, said this morning. So look, a lot of what is going on from the British government's point of view is politics. Remember, we are just one week removed from a heave against Boris Johnson, a heave in which he was backed by Jacob Rees-Mogg and that sort of very conservative, very pro-Brexit and anti-Northern Ireland protocol part of the party, you would wonder, was there something of a deal done there? Do me a favour on the protocol and I will keep you, I'll weigh my votes behind you and keep you as Prime Minister. And there does seem to be a sense from people I'm talking to in the Irish government who believe that domestic politics is more at play here than there actually being a huge problem or a huge difficulty uh, uh, philosophically between Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and the Northern Ireland Protocol it is after all something that Boris Johnson negotiated so there is that domestic politics part that is now spilling over not only into Northern Ireland but of course into the rest of the EU Are you getting any indication of the sense of frustration or even anger in the government in Dublin towards the British over the way they're handling this? Uh, definitely. I think the reason the frustration has been there for a long time has been there pretty much since there was the Brexit vote uh, and certainly wrapped up since Boris Johnson took over from Theresa May as Prime Minister at every step of the negotiations and we've covered them all, be it in Brussels, be it in Dublin or in Belfast over the last few years. There has been a sense that the UK government isn't really acting in good faith and you, you can't really trust them at this stage, especially when a deal was finally negotiated and now Boris Johnson is reneging on it, like I said. So it is very difficult to place any trust in them. I think by the statement that Simon Colby put out earlier and by the things that the Taoiseach has said in the last while about relations being at an all-time low, you can really pick up the anger and frustration that, that is there. And it's taken a big tumble from pre-Brexit. I mean, relations were probably then at an all-time high, stemming out of a really good relationship between Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn that was probably kept up uh, even during the bailout years and during the recession years, but since 2016 has just tumbled off an absolute cliff and relations between not only say, Boris Johnson and Micheál Martin, but also ministers and their counterparts in the UK are definitely at an all-time low. 
Well, now, Mary Lou MacDonald was speaking on Sky News yesterday and she said that this proposed change uh, in the Northern Ireland Protocol legislation amounts to breaching international law. I mean, in terms of punishing the British or putting manners on them or taking measures that will, if you like, uh, make them pay for their decision to go on a solo run, what can the EU Commission actually do? It would probably come in the form of trade sanctions, of sanctions on goods coming into to the EU from the UK. Like Northern Ireland has a very advantageous position in many respects at the minute. Okay, they had, it's tougher for them to import from the UK, and they say there is a lot of delays there, and that's sort of the, the most practical difficulty that businesses in the north are having with the protocol is that there's just a whole lot of paperwork if they're importing from the UK, and as a result, a lot more of them are, are importing goods from the EU instead, and they sort of have this dual advantage access. They're a part of the single market, the only part of the UK that's still in the single market, but then also have access to the UK market. Whereas the Commission could go and slap tariffs on other goods that are coming from the UK into the EU. And as I mentioned before, that's where you start to see, you know, the impact on, I know people joke about the sausage wars, but things like that, that you wouldn't be able to import sausages in the UK or other food groups from the UK, or if you did, it would be more expensive and all that's going to do is increased prices at the supermarket shelves beyond what they're already going up. So, again, that's where people in the UK and in Ireland and maybe other parts of the EU that are more connected with them trade-wise will suffer. And, of course, the other part of this is that uh, truckers who, for example, would uh, take goods from England through the port of Dover and onto the European mainland and have to go through all these customs checks, in theory now, if they go the opposite direction and go through Belfast and Larne and drive south, they're in the EU and they can then move goods from Ireland onto the European mainland without having to go through these customs checks. Isn't that one of the possible side effects from this? Uh, well, it is, yeah. I mean, look, that is one way of doing it around. Now, I'm not sure the volume at which that is happening um, because it is sort of a fortuitous route around things. Um, would it add more delays to you than actually getting through? I, I don't know the actual full logistics of it. There's also, I mean, the, the fuel or the haulage industry at the moment is facing a huge amount of problems, not only with these checks, but also with the increasing cost of fuel. That doing that sort of fortuitous route isn't as advantageous as it once was because you're paying for the extra fuel to go around and then uh, to get the, the ferry to France or whatever. So it is one of those back doors that, that sort of has been there. And up to now, they've been getting checked at the ports or at the ports in Northern Ireland if that was gone I suppose the fear from the EU point is yeah that some a truck could come from Scotland with goods that are of a substandard to the single market standard come through Northern Ireland go into the Republic and then get in to the mainland EU and as you said that dilutes the single market yeah, exactly. OK, well, look, we'll see what emerges at uh, 3.30 this afternoon and no doubt it's something we'll be returning to later in the week. That's uh, Sean Defoe there, our political correspondent. Getting back to some of your comments regarding fire hazards, Michelle was in touch from RD. Thanks for highlighting that story. Read the power bank and aerosol cans. I don't think teenagers realise the dangers of overloading sockets at times. Between PlayStations, laptops and phones, they have a lot going on. Very good information, re-aerosol cans. Thank you very much indeed, Michelle. And Martin says, thank God we are heading into the time of year where the weather will be warmer, because otherwise, he says, he doesn't know how he would be able to afford his heating costs. 
He's already wearing extra layers and using more blankets on colder days in a bid to keep his fuel costs down, and he's trying not to panic about how he will afford a fill of oil come the autumn. He knows it's not just older people who are struggling, it's across the board, every sector is struggling and feeling the pinch, and we need action from government. And you say there, Martin, that it's the time of year where the weather will be warmer. I must remind you that next week is the longest day of the year, and we start heading towards winter all over again. Anyway, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Barry rang in to say thanks, Ken, for the piece with Eamon Wolf this morning. He says he is sick, sore and tired of nagging his teenagers about overloading plug sockets and leaving their chargers and power banks constantly plugged in. So he fully intends to make them listen to what Eamon had to say. What happened in Dundalk last week was shocking and could easily happen in any one of our homes. We need to be more mindful about how we use these electronic devices. Okay, keep those comments coming now. As you know, the war in Ukraine has brought about some rethinking, particularly in the Scandinavian countries, about joining NATO. NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and traditionally its role has been to, uh, if you like, prevent countries from coming under uh, communist rule. Ireland has traditionally been neutral, but with the way things are going uh, and the fact that uh, we've had wars in Kuwait and Iraq and so on and we're generally aligned with the West, questions are starting to be asked as to whether Ireland should join NATO. One man who has a very strong opinion on this is Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell and a former member of the Defence Forces. So let me get straight to the point, Jerry Crockwell. Should Ireland remain neutral or should we join NATO? Uh, good morning, Ken. Good morning to your listeners. Um, no, we should not join NATO. That's the short answer to your question. Uh, what we should do is we should prepare ourselves and become what we always have been, and that is militarily non-aligned. Uh, and that requires a significant spend on defence. We are incapable of defending ourselves as we stand right now. We do have to start to engage with other countries to build alliances, bilateral alliances, uh, because we are at war every day now, and that war exists in cyberspace. So um, in terms of what's happened in Ukraine, I mean, if Ukraine had joined NATO, they in all likelihood would not be in the situation they find themselves in because Russia wouldn't have had the, the cop, if you like, to take on NATO. So isn't it time perhaps that uh, a lot of Western countries that are not in NATO should rethink about some sort of an alignment whereby in the event of an invasion or in the event of an attack, uh, we have some sort of protection from a bigger force. Um, you, the, the point you make is very well made. Um, Ireland, for all intents and purposes, is the largest aircraft carrier in Europe. I, 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 what I'm trying to say here, Ken, is that Shannon Airport is an ideal base to strike an attack west or to base aircraft from the west to strike an attack east. These are, are comments we wouldn't have dreamt of making up until the war in Ukraine. We now know that no country is safe. We now know that at any stage, a belligerent from wherever can strike. Uh, conventional warfare like what's going on in Ukraine at the moment may never come to Ireland, but that's not the point. We do need to be aligned. We do need to be in a position where if we want help, we can call it. Uh, And as we speak today, NATO is protecting our sky. 
uh, the RAF uh, will fly over Ireland if there is uh, a danger. Uh, and we, we don't have that capability. Similarly, we have no idea what's going on under our sea. Um, we have no uh, sonar, so we cannot see what's travelling under our sea and frequently along the West Coast where some of the largest uh, data cables in the world are brought into the, the uh, coast of Ireland. Uh, we have no idea what's going on beneath the sea with those cables. Sure, Jared, but I mean... Uh... How shall I put this? Our neutrality seems to be one of where we're neutral when it suits us, but we're aligned when it suits us. And I I think back, uh, I used to work in Leinster House, and I remember very clearly back in 2003 when Brian Cowan was the Minister for Foreign Affairs that after the war in Iraq started, uh, Brian Cowan gave a very uh, passionate and detailed speech saying Ireland supports the war on terror, which was another way of saying whatever America decides to do, we back America. So in that sense, we're not neutral, but we're only neutral when it suits us. Isn't that the case? 100%. First and foremost, uh, the term neutrality has been thrown around Ireland for eons, and I'm glad that you brought it up there the way you did this morning. And ministers from time to time have gotten up and made, made statements, and we're never quite sure where we stand. The truth of the matter is uh, neutrality means nothing unless there's a, a conflict. And, and when there's a conflict, if you're neutral, then you take no side. And that means you do not provide flak jackets or helmets or medical aid or anything. You just step away from it and you say nothing to do with us. We have only been tested once before now, and that was between 1939 and 1945. And particularly up in your neck of the woods, people will be aware of the fact that uh, members of the Allied forces, British, American, Polish, etc., were quietly slipped back across the border if they they landed in Ireland. Uh, We didn't slip Germans back across the border during that period. In the case of the Ukrainian uh, conflict that's taken place at the moment, we provided flak jackets and helmets. And you can say that these are humanitarian. They're not. They're military equipment. We are not neutral in this war. And there is no reason why we should not send any weapons we can afford to send out to the Ukrainians now to allow them to defend them. Sure, but that very point then makes a mockery of our so-called neutrality, doesn't it? Absolutely. We've never been neutral, and uh, it's it's a myth that has been allowed to grow uh, in the country for as long as I can remember. But we, we do not qualify under the Hague, Con- Hague Convention for neutrality. To be neutral, you must be able to defend that neutrality. And if you take Finland, uh, a country not much different than our own, with an economy not much different than our own, they've just bought a fleet of uh, F-35 fighter aircraft to protect their sky. We have no way of doing that. Yeah. We have no idea of sure. what's up there. Sure. I recall um, some years back monitoring a debate in Leinster House. I think Paul Keogh was the Minister of State in the Department of Defence about uh, a low-profile organisation called PESCO. And PESCO, as you know, I think is the permanent is it the permanent security cooperation unit that the European Commission is planning to develop. If we become a member of PESCO, once again, don't we align ourselves and our neutrality becomes a bit of a sham? 
Yeah, in fact, we have aligned ourselves uh, recently, Ken, to certain parts of PESCO, particularly in the area of technology and the development of technology, uh, both for the war machine and the cyber machine. So we we are a member of PESCO now as we speak. Uh, And that is a good thing, in my view, um, that we would have access to the most up-to-date equipment, etc. But you're right, you're 100% correct. It does make a total nonsense of this myth that has existed in Irish society that sure, we're a neutral state and everybody loves us. Uh, they did love us until they struck at our HSE and knocked that out in a few a few nanoseconds. So yeah, you're 100% correct. The NATO myth needs to be addressed and discussed uh, properly. There was a recent Irish Times uh, poll on uh, do you want Ireland to be, to be neutral? And of course everybody does. But few people realise the cost of neutrality and neutrality costs a huge amount of money in defence equipment. Uh, we would need fighter planes. We would need a far better navy. Remember, half of our navy is tied up in Cork, unable to go to sea because we don't pay uh, sailors enough to make them want to join the navy. Uh, we don't know what's going on in our sky. We have no primary radar. So we would have to invest massive amounts of money. And I think uh, the third option from the recent Commission on Defence requires a spend of about 3 billion euros. Yeah, would you accept, and I'm running out of time on this, Jared, would you accept, though, that the management of the Defence Forces uh, down through the decades has been nothing short of shambolic? There's an extraordinary turnover of staff because the pay and conditions are so bad. Some people are full-time members of the Irish Defence Forces and they have to go and get, if you like, welfare support just to make a living. That the whole treatment of our defence system by successive governments has been embarrassing even. Once again, Ken, you're 100% correct and clearly you've had an inside knowledge for for some periods of time because you've hit the nail on the head. We're just not paying the guys and the girls that are serving enough to make them want to stay and it is a terrible indictment on our system in this country. Okay, no doubt it's something we'll discuss uh, again in the weeks and months ahead. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. That's uh, Independent Senator Jared Crockwell, who himself is a former member of the Defence Forces. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. If you want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658 and others who have been in touch this morning. Regarding men's health, Mary was in touch from Dundalk. She says, what is it about men that they have to be really sick before they will go to the doctor? My own husband would rather ignore symptoms and always has to be nagged to get checked out. Maybe, Mary, you need a new husband. That's all I can say there. Uh, Regarding uh, men's health as well, Margaret fully supports the idea of Men's Health Week because men are notoriously bad for taking care of their physical and mental health. They would rather wait until they had an arm or leg hanging off before they would make time to see the doctor. Her own husband and adult sons are just as guilty. She has to badger them constantly and in the end they will just go to get off her back, so to speak. Men need to be more proactive when it comes to their health and stop leaving things till the last minute before they seek help. So it seems us males uh, we're not very good listeners. We won't do as we're told. We're bad, awful people. 
people uh, and some of us do pay the price very dearly if we leave things too late. So as I said, please do get in touch if you want to comment on the issues we've been covering here this morning. Our text number is 086-1800-658. Still to come... I'll be talking to the Irish Farmers Association. They have very strong uh, strong views about what's happening in London this afternoon when the British government announced that they plan to uh, introduce legislation that will bring about changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And you heard Sean Defoe saying earlier on that uh, what this is expected to mean is that the checks, the customs checks that are currently in place at Belfast and Larne Port, which uh, checks goods moving from GB into NI, that they will disappear. And this could result in a number of items uh, across a range of sectors, whether it be food, whether it be medicines, uh, whether it be embryos uh, and so on in terms of animal livestock and agriculture. Um, <clears throat> This could see a dilution of goods uh, into the Irish market, which in itself could cause problems. So uh, the uh, developments at London today are going to be watched very, very carefully. And it will be interesting to see if the uh, DUP are satisfied with what's contained in the legislation uh, in such a way that it will be sufficient for them to go back into the Northern Ireland Assembly. Now, regarding the cost of living, Alan was in touch. He agrees with the call for an emergency budget to deal with the cost of living increases. People are under pressure financially and they are becoming more and more worried about how they will make ends meet. We're seeing little or no leadership from government on the issue and that is only leading to more anxiety uh, amongst the public. So, as I said, if you're a senior citizen... If you are a pensioner who is surviving entirely on the state pension and you don't have a private pension, don't forget that a particular protest takes place in Dublin on Saturday. It kicks off at Parnell Square at one o'clock and it'll walk its way down Parnell Square into O'Connell Street, around by Delir Street. Uh, across Nassau Street and up into Kildare Street and they'll make a number of speeches outside uh, Leinster House, uh, the home of our Parliament, where hopefully uh, the politicians will get the message. I'm always fascinated by some of the protests that take place on a Saturday because uh, Leinster House is closed, the TDs and the ministers are back in their constituencies so they don't get to engage on a one-to-one basis with those outside the gates and sometimes the impact of a Saturday protest doesn't, if you like, make an impact the way it should by virtue of the fact that it's taking place on a Saturday, albeit that they're likely to get some TV coverage and newspaper coverage as well. So just bear in mind that that protest takes place uh, on Saturday at 1pm from Parnell Square. Now, the Irish Business Against Litter organisation has just published its latest survey of uh, well, litter proliferation uh, around the country. 40 towns and cities uh, were looked at, well, 40 towns to be exact, and, uh, well, let's just say that when it comes to Drogheda, it's pretty embarrassing because out of 40 towns that were surveyed, 
Drogheda finished in 39. That's how bad it is. And to discuss this further, I'm joined on the line right now by uh, Conor Horgan of Irish Business uh, Against Later. Uh, to put things into context, um, Conor, how bad were things in Drogheda? Well, Drogheda showed no improvement on its showing at the end of last year. What we did see was improvement elsewhere, Ken. So lots of the urban areas like Dublin's north inner city and parts of Cork that had been bad last year, they've improved. We haven't seen similar improvement in Drogheda, so it finds itself one off the bottom of the table. Well, before I go into Drogheda, let's uh, let's look at other towns in the region. Uh, Navan came out pretty good in this. Very good result for Navan. It was clean to European norms and one of its best ever results in 18th spot. Seven of the 10 sites surveyed got the top litter grade and there were no litter black spots. That's consistent with a trend we've seen this time around that the very bad sites are being cleaned up, particularly in our cities, but this was also evident in Navan. Some of the top ranking uh, sites included uh, the Boring Keel Park and Emmet Terrace. There was a big improvement at the Brink facility. St. Patrick's Park had been cleaned up, but it's still subject to dumping. That's a topic we've discussed before. But um, a better result for Navan than previously. And uh, Dundalk Town came out well. It did. Now, Dundalk is a former winner of our of our league, so we have certain expectations for us. It's, it, it, it did improve, but it was moderately littered. Not enough improvement to give it clean status. Market Square was very much deserving of the top litter grade. Um, the Castle Blaney and Carrick Macross approach roads were both top ranking. Um, there was notable litter presence at the Cost Cutter Car Park and at the waste ground on the corner of Maxwell's Row and St. Nicholas's Avenue, evidence of litter being there for quite a long time. And the recycle facility at Tesco also suffered from litter. But Wrightson's Lane was a much improved site. So it's a mixed bag for, Dund- for Dundalk, but in the right direction. OK, when it came to Drogheda, what parts of town, if you like, stood out as being bad? Well, I mean, the most thing about Drogheda was that of the 10 sites surveyed, only one of them, uh, was uh, deemed clean. So that's a pretty bad um, situation. That was um, the Drogheda train station, which is in very good order with a virtual absence of litter throughout and created a very positive first impression for Drogheda. Car park was also in a very good order. But apart from that, was the only grade A site, as we call it. Apart from that, we had a mixture of grade C's. Examples there were Westgate Street, very unusual for a main shopping street to be so heavily littered, according to Antashka. St. Lawrence Street was heavily littered. Ballsgrove Recycling, heavily littered. Marley's Lane, heavily littered. Um, They're a messy lot on Marley's Lane. That's where LMFM is based. <laughs> um, and Marsh Road was a little block spot. Some parts of the road were fine, but there was there was evidence of dumping along the road also. Um, so a pretty, you know, a pretty grim picture overall when you read about the different sites. Not relating to a single site, we do have, have cases where you might have seven sites good and three bad sites. In this case, there just weren't enough good sites. OK, well, the next question is, I mean, who is responsible for keeping the town tidy? Is it the council? Is it the local tidy towns uh, group or pride of place? Or who exactly has the job of cleaning up uh, any mislaid litter? Well, you know, the, the formula for success, as we would call it, would tend to be the, the local authority getting to grips with it in the first instance, cleaning it thoroughly, 
getting the tidy towns groups on board then and they tend to continue the work and keep it clean and you know, there's good evidence that if you can keep an area clean for a for a period people are much less likely to drop their litter in that area so that's what has led to success across the country but in the first instance particularly with heavily littered sites i think it's up to the local authority to take the initiative well, one could interpret that as saying that the local authority in this case, Louth County Council, is not taking the initiative. Is that the case or am I being a little bit harsh there? Well, I mean, the evidence is there that we have lots of heavily littered sites. Um, some of them presumably didn't become littered overnight. Um, the result for Drogheda at the end of last year was also uh, uh, not a positive one. So I would say that whoever's responsible for litter in the county council, they, they you know, there, there's a lot of work for them to do. Um, how much of the litter is driven by, we'll say, the activity of the nighttime economy? You know, people going into fast food shops, coming out, you know, littering the street with uh, litter or boxes of, you know, empty boxes from having consumed food and so on, and that this is contributing uh, to the bad luck? Well, food-related litter definitely is among the biggest contributors to to litter in, in any town environment. Um, but it's interesting that, uh, you know, during the COVID period, we were beset by lots of alcohol and food-related litter, which was relating to people whining and dining outside like never before. That was a real problem for every town and city. We've seen a fall off in alcohol-related litter. We've seen our parks cleaner than ever. So, you know, across the country, we are seeing change in that regard, um, which augurs well for the future. Okay, well, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the Tidy Towns organisation, and I think Pride of Place, uh, to a lesser degree, they have some sort of prize money or prizes uh, to give away to various committees to do a good job throughout the 12 months. But Irish Business Against Litter, am I right in saying there's no prize for anybody who actually does a good job to keep their town tidy? And I'm just wondering, is this something you need to look at? Well, we have in the past, we have, for example, put a sculpture in place in a town. And if you go to towns like uh, in Longford, we put a sculpture in place in, in Kildare. Um, just as a reminder to, in, in, you know, to help beautify the town, but also as a reminder of the achievement to people. Um, but we found that difficult, Ken, over time, very difficult to get a site within the town. And it became just too difficult. Um, our focus is primarily on the local authorities. Um, and it's it's really, you know, after them to do a good job in cleaning up the worst parts of their city or their town. And, you know, I don't know if the financial reward is as fitting in our case as it would be with other initiatives. OK, well, look, we're going to have to leave it there, but it makes depressing reading uh, for the citizens of Drogheda that out of 40 towns, Drogheda finished in 39th, uh, the second worst littered town in Ireland after the Ballybane area in Galway's inner city. And I see even way above Drogheda, places like Ballymun, Talla, uh, Sligo, uh, Crumlin in Dublin City, Middleton in Cork and so on. It uh, makes pretty depressing reading, Hopefully, uh, if we talk to you again this time next year, Conor Horgan, uh, things will be a bit better. That's uh, Conor Horgan there of the Irish Business Against Litter organisation with that survey, which, as I said, makes depressing reading for Drogheda, not so bad for Dundalk, and impressive for Navin. We'll take a break. 
Now, just going back to the story we covered earlier on about plans by the British government to publish details today in relation to changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. The president of the Irish Farmers Association, Tim Cullinan, says there is increasing concern within the Irish farming community about these proposed changes, and he joins me on the line right now. Uh, Tim, what exactly are these concerns? Obviously, there's a lot of concerns, and you know what farmers are dealing currently dealing with is the massive inflation in the in the price of fuel, fertilizer, and feed, you know, which is having a major impact on Irish on, on all EU farmers and particularly ourselves here in Ireland. And if you look at it, uh, you know, since this was it was a, a vote on on Brexit, it's six years ago now since we had this vote. In 2020, you know, they reached a, an agreement on a trade deal and on the Northern Ireland Protocol, you know, which was to prevent you know, that there would be no border, uh, a hard border within within the, our own country here, and that there would be checks on goods coming across the Irish Sea. That was all agreed. And you know, for any um, government or any individual now deciding that we're going to change this completely, uh, we're going to come forward with new legislation. So to me, that's mind-boggling. And, and you know, since this trade deal was agreed, it allowed the UK government to do trade deals outside of the EU, and which they have done. They already have almost completed a trade deal with Australia and with New Zealand, which is a, a threat to our, ourselves indirectly, because obviously you know, uh, we still export in excess of 33% of, of the the goods we produce here as farmers in Ireland into that UK market. So if they're going to be doing trade deals and, and bringing beef from Australia or lamb from New Zealand into that market, obviously that is a concern for ourselves. And there's sure. always a risk. The, the precedent has been set now. Boris Johnson may start uh, continue doing more trade deals with South American countries. Sure. So from that point of view, it's very worrying for us. And... Um, and and let me put the point to you, uh, Tim, because I'm trying to explain the complexities of this in very, if yeah, you like, okay. simplistic English. But as we understand it, the border checks at Belfast and Larne Port will end. So there will be a free movement of goods from GB to NI, as was the case prior to the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, kicking in. And over a period of time, there is likely to be a divergence in British standards from EU standards. Do you have concerns, for example that if the British are allowed to export, maybe that's the wrong word, or move goods uh, in the food and agri-sector from GB to NI, which in turn end up in the south, that it will make um, Irish produce less competitive and that the British product may be of a lower standard? Yeah, absolutely. That, that That's a huge concern for us because, you know, we remained in the EU. We are uh, a part of the single market, you know, which is, 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 I think, very important for us here in Ireland. And absolutely, you're right. If there's going to be no checks coming in and uh, if the British government continues with trade deals, and you're right, if, and we, can, we, we don't know this, but in the event that there would be produce of lower standard. And anyway, you know, I mean, I suppose with this protocol... Northern Ireland ended up, I think, in a, in a reasonable or in a, a good position that they could continue to trade within the EU, continue to trade with the UK as well. And look, I understand clearly from speaking to um, the members of the UFU, which I do on a consistent basis, they have some issues around 
uh, issues within that protocol, they can be dealt with. You know, our government, the EU, are clearly saying, you know, if there is issues that need to be dealt with within the current agreement, they, they are willing to do that. Not about bringing complete new legislation, and, and you're absolutely right, Ken, that it would be a free-for-all that goods can, can flow without any checks across the RIC. And so we can't, we can't have a situation like that to um, be allowed to happen. And is there the fear that, for example, if the British are allowed to, we'll say, import genetically modified food into the UK, which in turn could end up in circulation in the Republic, that this has serious implications for the quality, uh, the standard and indeed the production of food in this country? Of course, absolutely. So anything that would impact on, on the quality of food we have here you know, would obviously be very, very concerning for ourselves. So you know, we're an export-orientated country, and particularly in agriculture, our dairy and our beef, 90% of those produce are exported. We're exporting to 180 countries right around the world. And the last thing we want is anything that would impact on, 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 on those um, markets that you know, we have and built up over many, many years. All right. I think and you're right, that's critically important and, that and those markets are protected. And let me ask you this, Tim, a final question. I mean, what can the IFA do in terms of lobbying the powers that be in Brussels to either put the squeeze on the British or in turn impose some sort of sanctions in relation to imports and exports? Yeah, I suppose, look, it's, it's, um, I am consistently in Brussels as well. And uh, I think the one thing we have seen in Brussels since uh, the war in Ukraine, member states have really united together. You know, I, I, I genuinely believe you know, from the day that vote, uh, you know, it, it was worrying for the whole EU project. And uh, I think we receive huge support within Brussels from you know, where we are in, in Europe. You know, we're on the, the periphery of Europe. You know, we have to go through the UK. That is understood. And um, any time I put proposals forward in the EU you know, around this protocol, you know, we do get support around that. So the EU is fully behind our position you know, where we are in, in this whole Brexit debate and the protocol debate. Okay, well, we'll see how things uh, pan out after today when the details of these changes in the Northern Ireland Protocol legislation are published at around half past three. That's uh, Tim Cullinan there, the president of the Irish Farmers Association. Regarding littering in Drogheda, Tony is not a bit surprised to hear that Drogheda has fared so badly in the latest IBAL leagues. Sure, everywhere you go in the town, there's a litter strewn around the place. It's disgusting to see and create such a bad impression on people visiting the Drogheda. There is no excuse for the level of littering in Drogheda. And regarding the protocol says the UK government cannot be allowed to get away with what they are proposing with their legislation this afternoon. How can they be allowed to undo all the hard work done over the years to reach a solution that worked for everybody? It's unthinkable unthinkable that they seem to believe that they have the right to ride roughshod over everybody. And there you are. That just about wraps it up for this morning. I want to thank uh, Marie Kearns and Maggie McGuire who put the programme together. Chris Murray was on sound. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning. Sinead Brazel is next. And from myself, Ken Murray, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. When you need- 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.